The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Uh, please remain standing. We're going to uh, read from Ecclesiastes 5. We'll begin in verse 8, and then actually we're going to go all the way through chapter 6. So that's 12 verses. So Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 12. And remember, as I read, as you follow along and you read and listen, this is the word of God. Ecclesiastes 5.8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is, this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to be stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what he will be, what will be after him? under the sun. Father, as we approach your word, we ask again for your presence and your power, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. 
Well, we just went through another political cycle, and one of the perennial issues that always seems to emerge whenever there are political elections, particularly highly contested political elections, is the issue of money and of inequality and, and how it is that perhaps we can give more money to certain people who seem to lack it. The statistics that we hear often again around these times, every two years or every four years, are somewhat surprising. Apparently, and I haven't independently verified this, but apparently in the United States, the top 1% of earners receive 20% of the earnings and the top 0.1% receive 10% of this. And lots of people, of course, want to change this for a variety of reasons. But the fundamental reason that they want to change this is because there's an assumption underlying all of these debates. And the assumption is this, that more wealth is a good thing. That if there were a way to give people more money, that is necessarily doing them greater good. We assume this in all kinds of ways. I used to work at a college and it was not uncommon to see literature coming out of recruitment uh, manuals for colleges that would say things about the, the income potential that you uh, receive by actually attending and graduating from college and the significance of that. But this, this chapter in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and, and going through chapter 6 uh, takes on all of those assumptions about wealth takes on that most basic and fundamental assumption that lies behind so much of what we see and read, which is that more wealth is a good thing for us, that more wealth leads to greater happiness. It's striking to see the placement of this section in Ecclesiastes. You'll remember from the last time we were together that Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 comes more or less at the center of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's striking because at the very center of the book, you have something that the writer says is not vanity. And what he says is not vanity, and in fact is very serious business, is what you say before the Lord. But on either side of that center section, uh, on the one side in chapter 4, and now on the other side in the remainder of chapter 5 and chapter 6, is a discussion of money. And I think this is a clue as to the perspective of the writer of Ecclesiastes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knew the human heart. He knew uh, what we read with clarity in other passages of Scripture, that uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and, and you cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. And so when he is coming to the culmination of his exploration of the futility of life, it always seems to come back to money. And in this section, he outlines very clearly seven key truths about money, uh, seven key truths that, that put the lie to our most basic assumption, the most basic assumption that drives most of us on a daily basis, which is if we had more money, things would be better for us. I want to look at each of these uh, truths, each of these seven truths in, in brief, and then see what the big picture conclusions are that we can draw from this. The first, uh, the first truth, the first 
significant truth that the writer of Ecclesiastes confronts us with is in verses 8 and 9. Now, there is a a translation issue in verse 9 that we need to sort through. And perhaps if you heard me reading, I was reading from the ESV, maybe your translation reflects verse 9 a little differently. And that's probably right, because I think the ESV is confusing on this point. But the basic truth is this. The basic truth is, when it comes to wealth, you have to recognize that, that everyone is going to take a cut. If you think that more money is going to be entirely yours, you haven't looked very carefully at your most recent tax return. And you certainly haven't looked out the window and seen the way of the world. The reality is this, that the writer of Ecclesiastes says that, in fact, what always accompanies money are many, many hands outstretched to to grab a hold of it. Now, what he says in verse 8 is this, that you shouldn't be surprised at the fact that there's a violation of justice and righteousness when it comes to money. This shouldn't surprise us because it's always the case when money is involved, that there is going to be a, a violation of justice and righteousness. This shouldn't be a shock. And then he gives a specific example at the end of verse 8 and into verse 9. And here I think, uh, again, the translation that I read does not perhaps capture it. Uh, but the idea in verse 9 is this, that the increase of the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. Now, again, as I say, the ESV, I think, confuses this when saying it's a gain for the land. I don't think that's actually what the Hebrew is saying, that when the land itself gains, when there is gain for the land, even the king, everyone up the ladder all the way to the king has his hand out to grab a hold of that gain. And that's just part of the reality of life. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. It was as true then as it is today. If you've ever spent any time with someone with massive wealth, someone with significant means, and you start talking to them about the various ways in which they're, they're trying to protect that. They're trying to hem it in and, and, and keep it away from the hands of the government in as many complex ways as possible. You'll understand what this is saying. Uh, the idea is this, that as wealth increases, so do the people who have their hands on it. That's the first statement. That's the first truth. The second one comes in verses 10 through 12. And this is perhaps even more significant and profound for our lives today. The truth is this, that money never satisfies. That You can never actually have enough. There's a famous story associated with this. You've probably heard it used as a sermon illustration. Perhaps have even used it here before. And it has to do with the the uh, days of John Rockefeller, who's the first modern billionaire. And he was asked once by a reporter, how much is enough? And Rockefeller, at that time, the wealthiest man in the world by a significant margin, said just a little bit more. And you see, that's always the way it is. If you've ever thought in your mind that you would be satisfied with a certain number, be assured if you reach that number, you'll always want just a little bit more. You'll see all the problems with the number that you set for yourself two years ago and realize that actually what you need is something slightly more than it. And it's one of the the, the deceitful features of wealth. 
because we always tell ourselves that the number that we need is only slightly more than what we have. But we realize upon reaching it that it's extended yet again. Money never satisfies. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. If money is that which you love, recognize this, money will never satisfy you. If wealth is that which you love, you'll never be satisfied with whatever it is that you get paid. And you may ask yourself at this point, why is it that I'm never satisfied with the amount of money that I have? Why is it that I'm never happy with my salary and I always want a little more? And the key is here as well. It's because that's what you love. And if you love it, you won't ever be satisfied with it. When goods increase, he says, they increase who eat them. And in other words, there's always something more to spend money on. When you have it, you, you seem to spend it or you seem to find ways to utilize it. And that in itself leads to a greater and greater desire. If this is a trap you've fallen into, you need to go back to the root of it, which is the love of money. Third truth about money that is outlined in this section of the text is in verses 13 through 17. And that truth is this. Believe it or not, losing money is actually more painful than never having it to begin with. And there are all kinds of reasons for this that are given in the text and that we can discern from the rest of Scripture. But that's the fundamental point. It's more painful to have had money and then to have lost it than to have never had it to begin with. And the reason for that is because money, and we see this in this chapter, gets its, its tentacles into our heart. And we begin to love it and begin to love all that it can do for us. And that love increases and that grip tightens. And then when we lose it, we still have all of these desires. We still have all of these ambitions. We still have all of these things that we're used to, that we enjoy, that we, that we wanted. And now there's no chance at all that we'll ever be able to get them. Never mind the fact that even when we had the money, we weren't satisfied with it. The fact of the matter is that losing it is more grievous than never having it at all. This is the, the illustration that he gives. Uh, the riches of, of a certain man were lost, verse 14, in a bad venture. And in the end, he has nothing. And the worst part is he has a son. And we can imagine that the son has either grown accustomed to the wealth or had every expectation of inheriting the wealth. But the reality is now there's no wealth for the son or for the owner. And so he's going to go naked to his grave. And this is a grievous evil. And what happens to this one? Well, he eats all his days in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. The picture is of this bitter old man who seemed to have it finally in his grasp and then lost it all. And all he's left with is these deep desires for more with no possible hope, not, not even the illusion that they'll ever be satisfied for him. What's the next truth? Well, the next truth comes in verses 18 through 20. And here the writer does take a, a sort of positive view of money, but only within very certain specific parameters. What he said here, the truth that he reveals here is that money can, in fact, 
be a, a, a good and, and fitting thing if it's enjoyed with thanksgiving to God. And see, this takes us back to the first principle, or the second principle right, that we saw in verse 10, which is if you love money, you'll never be satisfied with money. And yet, if the Lord blesses with money and, and, and you're able to enjoy thanksgiving to God, that is, your love is not focused on the money itself. Your love is focused on God and your love is focused on all that he has richly given to you. Well, then there can be some joy and some fittingness is the word that he uses uh, to this kind of uh, use of money. Look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. You see, the picture here is of someone who has been blessed by the Lord with work to do and been abundantly blessed by the Lord with additional possessions by virtue of that work. And he recognizes that it's a blessing from the Lord. And so he enjoys it and enjoys that which comes along with it. But, but he recognizes the provisional nature of it. He recognizes it, that it's not ultimate, that it's not an end in itself, that it's not going to solve the problems of his life, that it's not going to give meaning or purpose to him, that it's not the source of his identity, that it won't last. He recognizes all those basic truths about money and therefore can enjoy it with thanksgiving to the Lord. This is the, the positive feature of money that the writer focuses on. In fact, actually in this section, it's really the only positive picture of money that he gives to us. And he was very careful to say this, that this, uh, this kind of uh, situation it doesn't last. Uh, verse 20, he will not much remember the days of his life uh, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is a brief enjoyment, and it's a gift from God, this one who's blessed as he labors. Well, let's look further into chapter 6 and see uh, the remaining three items that the writer wants to impress upon us about money. Verses 1 through 6 give an additional truth, and it's a particularly sad truth, but it's one that's really been implied by everything that's said in chapter 5. There are people, in fact, there are many people in the world who seem to have everything in terms of material possessions, in terms of wealth, in terms of all that we, we normally think makes for a good life, in terms of the things that politicians will promise us every two years or every four years, because the assumption is that this is what a good life consists of. There are many people who actually have those things, but who lack joy. They have everything but rejoicing. They have everything but real blessed happiness in their heart. Look at verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. Or a, a man who gives birth to all these children and Ides for them, but his verse three, his soul is not satisfied with life good, life's good things. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. There is, a, or verse six, the extreme example, the hyperbolic 
even though such a man should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. The reality is this. The writer observes something that all of us have observed, no doubt, and people whom we know, which is there are people who have been blessed in this way. Uh, but, but because they're not giving thanks to God, because, because their love is invested in the money itself, there's no joy there. And in fact, even the good gifts that God gives, the sort of positive vision outlined in verses 18 through 20, it is not one that they can ever experience. Because their, their focus is on the getting. Their focus is on the accumulation. Their, their focus is on just a little bit more. And, and, and because of that, that, they're left in utter darkness. Uh, they're left in a situation where he, he, he says in, in, in at least one case, this, this man has no burial at all. No, no, no one cares when he dies. His whole life was about getting. And there was no joy along with it. What a tragic situation that is. And you know, many people fall into this situation precisely because they believe one of the most insidious lies that money tells you. I think sometimes we can sniff out the fact that money won't bring us immediate happiness. We've had enough of a small experience with it to know that that's the case. But we tend to believe the lie. And this, I think, is often true, even in Christian circles, where we know that money doesn't bias immediate happiness. But we, but we tend to believe the lie that what money actually does bias, what it does give us is security for the future. But if you think your security for the future is bound up in the amount of money you have in various accounts, then you will be no different than this man in verses one through six. Because that constant search for security, just like the constant pursuit of pleasure and happiness apart from God, is, is ultimately endless. It's ultimately always going to require just a little bit more. And the sad tragedy of that is that ends in a life of total vanity, where, where the money actually has been given by God, and yet it's never been put to any kind of good use. Well, where does that leave the writer? He has two more truths that he wants to convey to us. The first is in verses 7 through 9. And this truth is a striking one that if you've done enough analysis of your own part, you know to be the case, which is that actually uh, the, the, the wanting of something, the, the pursuit of something, uh, it tends to be uh, more enjoyable, limited as it is, provisional as it is, ultimately futile as it is, but it actually tends to be more enjoyable than, than actually getting it. And this is what he says, his appetite, this, this toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Better in, in verse 9 is the sight of the eyes than, and, than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. He actually says that in a peculiar way, and again, in an ultimately futile way, it, it makes no difference in one sense in the final analysis, but oddly enough, oddly enough, the pursuit of these things is, is better than actually just snapping your fingers and getting it all. That will provide no real joy. And so this brings us then to the final point that he makes, the final truth about money in verses 10 through 12. 
And I'll put it like this. This is really the fact that in all of these things, there is deep uncertainty. The, the, the phrase that is repeated in one form or another in verses 10 through 12 is, for who knows? For who knows? Whatever has come to be has already been named. The more words, the more vanity. What advantage is it? Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? And this I'm pointing ultimately to the fact that all of these pursuits in which we engage, all of these pursuits seem to offer some kind of promise of happiness, seem to offer some kind of promise that it will, they will remove the essential vanity of life, the fact that life is a merest breath. And yet he says, when you look around at all the pursuits of man, all the things that people try to do, who knows? There is no guru you can go to, no self-help book you can pull off the shelf. And you can cycle through them all throughout your life. And the conclusion you will come to is, who knows? But the writer has told us, of course, that there is a key to engaging with wealth. Again, we see it back in chapter 5. The key to it is recognizing that it is a gift from God. Now, what, what large-scale conclusions can we draw from these seven statements, these seven truths about money? Well, I think there are a number of things. First of all, we, we can see in both of these chapters that money in itself will not help solve our problems. In fact, if, if we were to count the ways in which money affects our lives in chapters five and six, what we would realize is that actually the writer in, seems to indicate that money creates for us more problems, not fewer. The problems are psychological. The problems are even economic. Uh, the problems have to do with the government and the family. It will always disappoint. It will always cause you to care about things and prioritize things that you never actually meant to care about and prioritize. This again comes back to what the scriptures tell us, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We see some of that mapped out in these chapters, but surely there are more ways we could illustrate it. Money doesn't help. In fact, actually, on balance, it seems to create more problems than it solves. The second major truth that we see is that money is only of value if it's accompanied with thanksgiving and joy. Thanksgiving to God himself and joy in the gifts that he's given. And then that brings us then to the real question that we need to be asking ourselves. The real question that no politician will ever try to answer because no politician in and of his own, his own self can answer is what is the source of thanksgiving and joy? If that's the key, then what's the source of it? Well, the scriptures tell us a great deal about this, of course. The scriptures tell us actually that these kinds of things aren't dependent on our physical circumstances. Remember the way Paul describes the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8? This is a very striking description. He says this, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, along with their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What a, an extraordinary uh, conjunction uh, of descriptions. 
the writer Paul says that they had an abundance of joy and they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And yet this is combined with extreme poverty and a severe test of affliction. What is that but a reminder that thanksgiving and joy, the only thing that can even make whatever wealth we have, uh, have any, give us any joy at all, uh, that these are things not dependent on physical circumstances. Or what about what Paul says regarding the Thessalonian church? In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you remember the situation in Thessalonica. Paul had to leave after perhaps only a few months. We know that he was at least three Sabbaths there reasoning with them. But he had to leave in the, under the cover of night because he was going to be murdered. And that persecution, that, that opposition of the gospel continued long after Paul left. And when he writes to the Thessalonian Christians, what he says is this, you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Actually, it turns out that the situations in which these churches are explicitly said to have great joy involve not not simply what we think of as the blessing of God, but often involve severe affliction and persecution. Or what about the recipients of the book of Hebrews? The writer says, you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. Or what about what the writer of Hebrews says regarding Jesus? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's why James says very succinctly in James 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. At the very least, if we're not quite ready to say that trials and persecution and affliction are the source of this joy, at the very least, we say this, that those kinds of external circumstances in and of themselves aren't what determine our level of joy and thankfulness, or at least they're not supposed to be. A second thing we can say about this kind of joy is that it is associated often with sacrificial ministry, and it's always associated with progress and sanctification in the Christian life. This is why Paul, when he outlines the fruit of the Spirit, he, he includes joy at the beginning. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Or Paul, when he's writing to the Philippian church, says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. It's connected with sacrificial ministry, and it's connected with progress in the Christian life. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we work with you for your joy as you stand firm in the faith. Real joy is connected in the Bible with our steadfast, immovable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our progress in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us, I think, to the most important thing, which is that this kind of joy is something that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's really supernatural. In fact, actually, when we read Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20, well, it gives us just a glimpse of one of the possible scenarios in which wealth might actually be enjoyed, when wealth might actually bring more good than harm. We see as we read between the lines that this must be a supernatural act. 
Because Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 15, as he gives this great benediction to the church, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This is what Peter means when he says, though you don't now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. It's this joy of the Holy Spirit, this supernatural joy that enables us in some small way to give thanks to God and to enjoy the blessings that he's given to us. In this same Holy Spirit, the one who can fill us with joy in Jesus is offered to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is part of the offer that we make to people when we proclaim Christ. This is how Paul summarizes it in Titus 3. And this, I think, should shape how we view even something like wealth as it's outlined for us in Ecclesiastes. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that renewal is no small thing. That renewal is really the only thing that enables us to enjoy the gifts of creation that God has given to us with thanksgiving in our hearts. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word about this important matter. We struggle with this, and we admit to you our failings. You know them already. We ask that you would fill us with the joy of the Holy Spirit, something that is supernatural, that comes from outside ourselves. And in so doing, we would ask that, among other things, you would enable us to enjoy with contentment whatever it is that you give to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.